Where are they now? What I'm going to do today is take four prominent Russian figures who once upon a time were very, very evident and now seem for sometimes similar, sometimes different reasons to be adopting a distinctly lower profile. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So, the extraordinary and horrific period since February of last year has seen some figures like, say for example, the mercenary businessman Prigozhin, of great note these days, bubble up into sort of much greater prominence. But there's also a whole bunch of people who seem to have become a lot more subterranean in their activities. And that's what I want to look at today, because I think in each of these stories, there is both a common underlying leitmotif but then there are also ways of using these cases to actually illustrate wider processes that are going on in Russia today. And the four people I want to look at are Alexander Bortnikov, the director of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, Dmitry Kiselyov, the general director of Russia Sivodnya, Russia Today, the media empire, and also a propagandist in his own right. And then after the break, Alexander Bastrykin, the head of the investigatory committee and one of the sort of the main witch hunters, at least certainly in the past, and Alexei Dumin, the action man governor of Tula region. So let's start with Bortnikov. Now, Bortnikov is, well, he's, he's past his sort of age 70 usual retirement point. He's also quite uh, widely known to, to be ill. But nonetheless, he's still in place. He's still essentially the, the head of Putin's domestic security service, one of his, his trusted henchmen and acolytes. But on the other hand, as I say, he's not at all that active. He only really trundles out when he absolutely has to. When, for example, there's been some you know, cross-border incursion from Ukraine, or in particular sort of set-piece events at which his absence would be particularly noteworthy. I mean, for example, this month, beyond Security Council meetings, which are almost invariably held uh, virtually, well, likewise, his only real uh, public activity, well, say public, open activity, has been chairing an online meeting of the National Anti-Terrorism Committee. Now, again, this is it. This is something that is required. He is ex officio the chair of this committee, and it certainly couldn't not meet because after all that we've had most recently the killing of the mill blogger Vladlen Tatarsky, and in fact that indeed turned out to be the, the key element of this meeting, with a, a warning that Ukrainians were attempting to recruit Russians into becoming willing or unwilling, knowing or unwilling agents. But beyond that, where's Bortnikov? And the answer is, look, he is still exercising overall management functions. By all accounts, he doesn't spend that much time at Lubyanka, either the, the building that we all know, the, the, the big old 
insurance building actually on Lubyanka Square or the big ugly grey block next to it just on the other side of the road which is actually these days the real administrative hub of the FSB. So he sometimes is in... He's not lost his control over the institution by any means, but he's certainly generally regarded as having lost any particular desire to get involved in the day-to-day management. Now, why is that? Well, again, in part, it's simply because he's getting old, he's getting ill. For a long time, he actually was expecting to be able to relinquish this particular position. The anointed successor, which, you know, is likely to happen, unfortunately, for reasons I'll come into, but which cannot be guaranteed until it does, is Sergei Karalyov, who is his first deputy head, and a man who, I must admit, is that worst possible combination, as far as I'm concerned, as being both, from the sound of it, deeply unpleasant, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of suggestions, unproven, but... I would suggest exceedingly, let's say exceedingly plausible, of connections to organised crime. But more to the point, he has a reputation for being you know, a deeply unpleasant individual, perfectly willing to see evidence fabricated and the like. But even worse than that, he is also apparently smart and energetic. You know, it's one thing if, if you have a lazy bastard, but not to have a smart one. The thing is that I think one can actually connect this potentially to another story doing the rounds, and that is, of course, the trumped-up charges that were used to arrest American journalist Evan Gershkovich, who has been accused of being a spy and is almost certainly being lined up to be one more in the uh, selection of trade goods that Moscow can present to Washington for exchanging remaining spies that are being held in, in foreign custody. Now, Gershkovich was arrested by officers of DKRO, which is the Department of Counterintelligence Operations. And it's an interesting department in some ways because it's much less corrupt, in my opinion. If we're talking about corrupt in the sense of personal enrichment, it's not like so many of the other FSB departments where basically your day job is just your excuse for your stealing. DKRO, firstly, it doesn't really have the same opportunities. And secondly, it still has, in my opinion, more of the the esprit de corps, the sense of identity, that actually they are the warriors on the secret front, busy defending the motherland from nefarious foreign agents. So in this respect, I would suggest that what we can see is the activity that is driven by politics and orders from above, rather than necessarily initiative from below. I mean, it's interesting that, for example, Gershkovich was followed and then detained by officers who had come from Moscow. So it is not that he was then sort of simply taken by a especially zealous or opportunistic local officer who thought, aha, this is my chance to to make my bones and and become known. So, you know, the DKRO was presumably working to instructions. Now, this particular department is part of the first service, the counterintelligence service, of the FSB. It's not in and of itself an, as a section of the agency that Karolyov really has had much contact with in the past. He has been involved you know, primarily in the fourth service, the economic security service, which let's be perfectly honest, is not only the one where most senior FSB figures, again, make their names known. It's worth noting after all that Bortnikov was a former head of, of the Economic Security Service. It's also the one with vastly more opportunities for personal enrichment than any of the others. 
This is where the real opportunities for extortion, rent-seeking and embezzlement come in. So, not surprisingly, the opportunists, they want to be in the fourth, not the first service. So, Karolyov's not really had much contact. However, first of all, the head of the DKRO, Lieutenant General Dmitry Minayev, has been very credibly linked to Karolyov, as well as all kinds of, of, of dodgy and dirty dealings of his own. But more to the point, when Karolyov became first deputy head of the overall FSB, that meant actually that the first service became part of his formal remit. So ultimately, the orders that go to the DKRO come from Karolyov to someone who is apparently a Karolyov proxy or client. Now why this is interesting is because, look, Karolyov had long been tipped for the top. However, the idea had been that basically back in 2020 he would probably be taking over. But Karolyov has made more than a few enemies. And also Karolyov makes more than a few mistakes. And in particular, he was first of all implicated in the 2019 Golunov case, in which a journalist was framed on very iffy drug charges, really as a part of a sort of little scheme within the Moscow FSB. But anyway, this all blew up, became a very public issue. Lots and lots of not just journalists, but the other sort of literati and media darlings of the Moscow set were up in arms. And in fact, what happened is the state uh, quickly withdrew the prosecution, prosecuted a whole bunch of people who were involved and so forth. Now, Karolyov was not directly caught, but he definitely was was involved in that. And this did him no good at all. And also there was a point of particularly embarrassing criminal connection with a gangster by the name of Aslan Gagiev, which actually forced Bortnikov to basically have to... You know, bring Karolyov in for a serious talking to. So, you know, at that point, it was just deemed that he wasn't quite uh, in a strong enough political position to be able to be quickly appointed to first deputy head and then take over as deputy. So, Bortnikov, I understand, with a certain degree of reluctance, undertook to sort of shoulder the burden for another year or so. And that was in August 2019. But then what happened? Well, Covid happened. And although one could say, well, why should that have any kind of impact? You know, not only did it mean that Putin was in the most extreme and uh, bizarre forms of biosecurity isolation, but also there was a general concern about anything that looked disruptive. In that context, Putin, who is after all very conservative anyway, he doesn't like reshuffling his senior officials, especially senior officials concerned with the security apparatus, decided, oh, well, no, we'll have to put it off a little bit further. Come out of COVID, Karolyov is, you know, is established, though he still has people sniping at him because they basically don't want him to become director. And then we have February of 2022, the invasion of Ukraine. Again, a period of above all uncertainty. Is there going to be mass protests? Well, there was a certain amount of mass protests we shouldn't overlook. But more broadly, again, the, t the sense of is this really the time to elevate an able but potentially highly contentious candidate. So again, it gets pushed back. But it can't get pushed back forever, because Bortnikov clearly is basically not, well, he's either not running the FSB, or he's running it on a certain kind of autopilot. And that's beginning to manifest itself. Firstly, we're beginning to get more local FSB people basically 
developing their own policies. We're seeing greater divergence in, for example, the approaches used in, in different cities and different regions. We're also seeing some, again, at this moment, very, very quiet, but nonetheless evident, sense that there is disquiet within the FSB about what's going on. Not, I think it's sad to say, for moral reasons about the war and the like, but practical ones, because after all, they are going to be in the front line if anything actually boils up in terms of public protest and the like. They're less concerned, I think, about direct political uh, protest so much as economically driven protest down the line, particularly next year, when there is a sense that, that a certain number of, of, of chickens and indeed vultures may well come home to roost. And the sense is that economic protest drives political protest. So a concern about the overall direction. And in this case, there is a, a certain degree of pressure from within the FSB to actually say, come on, you know, basically we need to have a clear, effective steer from the centre. So given that, that Karolyov has seen elevation to this key position that he clearly wants, snatched from him not once but several times by his own involvement in what turned out to be rather scandalous affairs, by Covid and then by invasion, he clearly actually wants to seal the deal. And part of me wonders if, in fact, one of the drivers behind the Gershkovich case was precisely Karolyov, like a cat, determined to drop the, the carcasses of small birds and rodents around your house, wanting to present the boss with something that he thought the boss would like, something that he could actually use to negotiate with the Americans, but also to support this narrative of the enemies all around us, the perfidious West trying to, to undermine Russia and journalists and the like all actually being, being in the pay of the special services of these perfidious Anglo-Saxons. So in this case, I think what we can do is, is see Bortnikov's relatively low profile as not just simply being a sign of, of an ageing man who's not really up to the job, but also as a part of transition. I mean, I think this is the thing, that although Putin does not want to see instability, he probably doesn't want to see churn, but nonetheless, I think it's clear that the demands, not just of the war, but of the wider campaign to cope with the pressures that it brings, along with sanctions and such like, is actually going to force Putin into some kind of generational shift. You know, there is a point where he can't truly rely on his fellow septuagenarians to run everything. And this is going to be fascinating because this younger generation, I mean, I'm not saying it's a nicer generation, but it has a different set of perspectives. And Karolyov, I would perhaps exempt from this, but in the main, these are people who don't necessarily have a really emotional commitment to the struggle with the West. They are essentially going to be much more pragmatic, self-interested kleptocrats. Karolyov, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, he is undoubtedly kleptocratic, but whether or not he also has imbibed more of the sort of the genuinely has imbibed the sense of a true civilizational struggle against a, a decadent and evil enemy, we'll have to wait and see. But on the other hand, frankly, if all he's doing is cosplaying it, if he's doing that shall we say, realistically and effectively, and he really throws himself into the part, he doesn't really matter what he believes in his heart of hearts. But nonetheless, so I think Bortnikov's decline is in some ways a harbinger of the potential rise of a new, and in some cases, much more dangerous generation of people. 
In the main, I'm, I'm a fan of the generational changeover, as I've said in the past. But we have to note that some of the people who are going to be rising are people whom we're going to find very uncomfortable to deal with. So that's Bortnikov. Now let's move to Dmitry Kisilyov. Now the general director of Rossiya Sivodnia was once upon a time the jazz-handed poster child for the Putin regime's attempt to create a new subjective reality. Indeed, when in 2013 he took over the Anovosti and he went to their offices and met with a whole bunch of largely deeply underimpressed journalists, he said objectivity is a myth that is proposed and imposed upon us and instead Russia needs our love. And this very much became the start of a campaign to, to break any remaining resistance to becoming a propaganda outlet within the state media. And this is essentially what he's become. And look, at one point he was very much, I would suggest, probably the highest profile propagandist, not just for Russians, but also for Russia watchers in the West. This is a man who, after all, had crowed about the fact that Russia was the only country in the world that could turn America into radioactive dust. This is a man who has a, a distinct and one might say Freudian hobby horse about gay people and has said that when they died it's not just that their blood shouldn't be used for transfusions but that their hearts should be burned and the ashes scattered lest they pollute the rest of society and such like. So, you know, a charming chap. Now, look, he still has his regular weekly TV program, Vyasnik Nidjeli, News of the Week. But in so many ways, he is becoming, I would suggest, superseded by an even more toxic collection of commentators. People like uh, Vladimir Solovyov, Olga Skabeyevir, and such like. Now, it's not to say that he does not say outrageous and ridiculous things. I mean, take... This is a passage that he said quite recently. Americans cannot see Nazis in Ukraine, point blank. But, after all, this is also a lie. To assert that the regime is democratic, where any opposition, whether a TV channel or a party, is banned. Where those who disagree are simply killed. Where accomplices of the Nazi Nazis, convicted at the Nuremberg trials are officially proclaimed national heroes. Now, look, this is absolutely nonsense. Of, yes, some opposition parties are banned, but, you know, in fairness, this is a time of war. In time of existential struggle, all regimes become, in effect, authoritarian socialisms. But the idea that, that people are being killed simply for being oppositionists, I mean, that's absolute nonsense. And let alone the notion that Nuremberg trial defenders have become heroes of Ukraine, I and mean, first of all, none of them are Ukrainians. And even if we look at Stepan Bandera, a person whom the Russians very much want to portray as a Nazi collaborator, to be honest, I mean, he was the, the head of the OUN, a Ukrainian anti-Soviet nationalist organization, but nonetheless, he was detained for a while in a concentration camp, and he refused to become an ally collaborator with the Nazis. I mean, I'm not for a moment actually suggesting that I regard him as a particularly savoury figure, but he certainly is not a Nazi collaborator. And more to the point, although there were efforts made to have him declared a hero of Ukraine, that decree was actually blocked by the courts. 
So, you know, again, this is, this is absolute nonsense. This is just out-and-out out lying. But still, what can we expect? I mean, the irony is he said this in the same month in which he was awarded the Golden Pen of Russia by the Russian Union of Journalists. But that in itself is quite interesting. I mean, the Golden Pen, it's, it's a very real award, but I can't help feeling that it's a little bit like those Hollywood Lifetime Achievement Awards. It kind of implies that your glory days are over, and this is a kind of retrospective attaboy for your past oeuvres, rather than anything you're expected to do in the future. So this is a figure who, yes, he's, he's still doing his shtick, but nonetheless, he is, he is bubbling under. And instead, what is he doing? Is he doing the high-profile things? Well, to a degree. I mean, remember, he has a powerful day job head as general director. Um, but nonetheless, the sorts of things he's doing as well, for example, recently he was rolled out to talk to children at Moscow School 2054. And not just that, but he actually faced pushback from the kids there. I mean, one of them has said that Putin had robbed the country and built himself a palace, which is perfectly true, but it put Kisilyov in the position where you know, he had to sort of push back, and he was saying that the f famous film in which Navalny sort of outed all of this, the, the palace at Gilinjik, was a fake. And that's all very well, but really, I mean, actually getting involved in tussles with school children over Putin's palace, I mean, this is not a high-profile prestige gig by any means. So this is the interesting thing, that although Kisilyov still is well-paid and powerful, he is, is clearly sort of shrinking in public status. Now, what's going on here? Um, to a degree, it is that he is being outgunned rhetorically. That people like Salavyov and Skabeva mentioned, I mean, are willing to say even more ridiculously outrageous things these days. Kisilyov actually, you know, basically sticks to a relatively narrow range of rhetorical uh, approaches and, and, and comments, I would suggest. Beyond that, though, I find myself wondering, is it that Kisilyov is receding from public view? Or is it that he is, in fact, withdrawing from public view? Because this is something that I'll be coming to in the second half of the podcast. Obviously, the mainstream technocrats who have been, frankly, horrified by the war and the likely impact of the war on Russia's development long term. They clearly have been looking for ways in which they can do their job, carry out, shall we say, the minimum of necessary propagandistic work in order to satisfy the boss, but basically, as far as they possibly can, detach themselves from a close identification with the conflict. So, you know, people like Prime Minister Mishustin, people like mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin, the, the usual suspects. Those are, so I say, one faction. But then there are also people who one couldn't really describe as simply apolitical technocrats. You know, someone like, like Kisilyov, he is a dramatic figure in many ways, but I also mean it in the sense of he tends to play roles. You know, way back at the end of, the, of Soviet times, for example, he actually distinguished himself by being opposed to the hardliners. He refused, for example, to read out misleading accounts 
of the uh, repression that was being carried out in the Baltic states and so forth. But even then, you know, it seems to be more likely that then he realised that the, the necessary role to play is one of the honest, objective journalist. Then, more recently, he realised that, in fact, the most lucrative role to play is that of the propagandist-in-chief. And that's why it's interesting that now he seems trying to actually develop some kind of new persona, who is, of course, propagandistic. Propagandistic enough, but willing to sit back and let other people take the mantle of the the, the real firebrands of the, of the, the, the new era. And it may well be that the rather wily Kisilyov is willing to set them up or let them set themselves up to become the fall guys and gals if things go badly wrong. Whereas he is just, I mean, again, I don't know if he could really survive the fall of, of the Putin system. But nonetheless, he is in a position in which he actually can try and dodge some of the worst fallout. And I think it's it's really interesting. Look, obviously this is speculation. I could be completely wrong. But nonetheless, given the amount of organisational muscle that Kisilyov can muster, given his evident capacity at playing a role and coming up with outrageous statements, if he really wanted to put himself at the forefront of the propaganda campaign, the Z-heads, who are wholeheartedly and full-throatedly committing themselves not just to this war, but the fact that this war is a, a grand civilizational struggle from which no Russians should actually shirk from putting their entire all into supporting, well, if that's what he wanted, I suspect that that's what he'd be doing. And therefore, the very fact that he's not, the very fact that he is, to a degree, moving towards the shadows, suggests that even someone like this, who is, after all, a survivor, is thinking that, well, maybe he needs to hedge his bets. So let's have a break and then let's move on to another survivor, Alexander Bastrykin. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So the next rogue in our gallery is Alexander Bastrykin, who since 2011 has been head of the investigatory committee, Sliedkom, which is actually created at his instigation, or made into an independent body at his instigation that year. It's always been an interesting question quite what his relationship with Putin is. Some people say that because he was at law school, well, taking law at Leningrad State University, at the same time as Putin shows that he's an old classmate friend. Well, let's be honest, you know, if I think of the people I was at university with, I wouldn't necessarily say that they are all my, my bosom buddies. Actually, Bastrykin clearly does not really have much of a personal relationship with Putin. He's definitely in that category of servants rather than friends. And he is clearly always determined to demonstrate his utility to the boss. And 
In that context, it's really quite interesting if one looks at what he's doing at the moment. And clearly, look, Snerkom is busy looking at the Tatarsky bombing, continues to push back against allegations of human rights abuses by Russians and the like. But in terms of what Bastrykin himself is personally associating himself with, well, what are the recent uh, cases? Well, he's taking personal control of the case of the murder of an 11-year-old girl in Karachai, Cherkessia. Okay. He's taking personal control of the case of the potential violations of the rights of large families in Orenburg region. Apparently, they were being allocated plots of land, per the law, but without water supplies and access roads. Horror! I mean, this is clearly one of the primary issues which faces Russia today. And he's taking personal control of the case of a 16-year-old boy in St. Petersburg, who's regarded as having developmental disabilities, who may have been abused. Now, look, all of these are entirely valid cases, but are they cases that the, and it's not at all a good comparison, but let's just say for the moment, the equivalent of the head of Russia's FBI needs to be taking personal control. What is this going on? I mean, is this admirable attention to detail? But look, this is a guy with there's only a limited amount of time. He still has 24 hours in the day like the rest of us. He is not, by all accounts, a workaholic, although in fairness, nor is he as, as lazy and self-indulgent as so many others within the, the Russian elite. But still, this is not what one would think of really as the best use of his time. Is this a desire to present himself as being everywhere and being everyone's protector? Maybe there is an element of that, and certainly it, it suggests that, if, frankly, if, if you've lost your dog or you're not quite sure where your car keys are, you should be giving Bastrykin a ring and he will swoop in and, and be on the case. But again, the interesting thing is that it's not even as if then these events are all packaged to create a narrative of Bastrykin, the unsleeping people's friend. Instead then, well, I mean, maybe this is in fact a determination by a politically savvy survivor who knows full well that he has relatively few allies within the political system, trying to keep away from the political cases that at the moment gain so much more Kremlin attention. Now, this is in part basically to give the FSB free reign because the FSB is clearly leading on these issues and tends to be jealous of its cases and its perquisites. But it is clearly the case that Bastrykin, who in the past has been willing to tangle with the FSB, even though that agency is so much more powerful than Sliadkom, again, actually, what we're seeing is Bastrykin, another survivor, another relatively politically savvy one, being willing to let other people take the lead on the high-profile cases. And what's more, it's noteworthy that... Prosecutor General Igor Krasnov, very able official, technocrat, I would say, technocrat in prosecutor's uniform, but technocrat nonetheless, is also keeping a very low profile. Interior Minister Vladimir Kolokoltsev, a man who frankly doesn't have a great deal of, of political muscle, but nonetheless has, has again stayed in place for a surprisingly long time, since 2012 no less, and who, you know, at, at times has been forced to very much kind of play the hardline card, even though basically he's a career cop who just wants to do career cop things. You know, all of the law enforcers, with the exception of the FSB, which is 
frankly, less about law enforcement and more about political enforcement. But anyway, all the law enforcers are essentially trying to stay out of things. And that's, again, I would suggest quite, quite a striking and noteworthy element. Bastrykin in the past has been terrifyingly extreme in some of his language. He has pushed for laws that would basically push back the whole boundaries of what is acceptable behaviour, particularly within the political sphere. He has intimidated journalists. He has gone after human rights advocates. He has been a key figure in creating the cases, not just against Alexei Navalny, but the whole Navalny organisation. You know, this is not, not a man who clearly has any moral qualm about being a political attack dog of the Kremlin. Indeed, that has actually been central to his whole shtick. I mean, this is one of the reasons why he was successful in getting Putin to take the investigatory committee, which had been part of the Prosecutor General's office, and make it an independent one, is precisely that then it will be freer to go and lead these kind of cases. And yet now, at the very time when one would think that it's actually in Bastrykin's interests to be taking a very, very strong line... Instead, he's sort of basically sitting back and instead you know, going, going after cases of farms without water supplies in Orenburg rather than actually taking the lead in the high-profile cases. He's happy to let the FSB do that. So again, what do I read from this? Well, once again, it's someone who can in no way be considered to have moral qualms with what's going on at the moment. But nonetheless, for political reasons aware of the relative weakness of his position, is trying to tread that line. He's being loyal enough, outspoken enough, vehement enough in his support of the new line, without, though, going so far that there's no possible way he could walk things back if circumstances change. I can't help but, but feel that it's in precisely the people like the Bastrykins of this world rather than the central bank chair Nabulina, whom we knew was always much, much more lukewarm or you know, distinctly unhappy with the war and everything it meant. It's now when we find the Hawks are beginning to think that they might want to keep a few little feathers of dovishness in their plumage that it says something about what's going on within the wider Russian elite. And a slightly different strategy, in my opinion, is what we see in the current political activities of Alexei Dumin of Tula region. Now, Dumin's one of those figures that uh, journalists and pundits tend to end up naming when they're forced to list some potential successors to Vladimir Putin. We should treat that particular exercise with, with all the, the contempt with which it's, it's due, because after all, there is at the moment no anointed successor, and frankly, it will be very dangerous to be talked about seriously in those terms. Still, look, it's, this is a man who clearly has the personal confidence of the president. He was the former head of Putin's personal bodyguard. He was then made deputy head of GRU, military intelligence, and head of its special operations forces, a role he had during the annexation of Crimea. There were moves to try and get him elevated to head of the GRU, GU technically, but nonetheless that was stymied to a large degree thanks to Shoigu and Gerasimov, Defence Minister and Chief of the General Staff. He's a hero of the Russian Federation. By his own account, he saved Putin from a bear once. Uh, the story is much less dramatic than it sounds. But in 2016, he was appointed governor of Tula, 
And to be perfectly honest, he seems to have actually been a pretty good governor. I mean, both because he's got the kind of Moscow connections which are all important in ensuring that resources come your way. It also helps that Tula is one of the, the hearts and indeed the sort of the historic cradles of Russia's defence industries. It's got actually a pretty impressive uh, museum of military industry and weaponry in the, roughly speaking, shape of a traditional Russian helmet. That's another story. But still, these have helped him bring resources to Tula. The city itself actually has been modernised really rather well. And he continues to actually have, a, I think I would say, a, a disproportionate profile with the Kremlin, given this, this sort of uh, personal connection. And it's worth noting, after all, that, that, that Putin visits Tula and has conversations with, with Dumin more often than with most other governors. Given that he is an ex-military figure, given that you know, he needs to obviously maintain his, his relationship with the Kremlin, it's perhaps not surprising that at times he has been very outspoken in, in support of the quote-unquote special military operation, and he always seems to be on hand whenever some new consignment of military equipment or whatever is, is being sent to the forces. However, while I think, I would say, the first six months of the war saw him very active, shall I say, in the national media and very much seeking to present himself as one of the governors who are particularly supportive rather than the ones who are just kind of whining about the level of their budgets. What I find quite striking is that of late, although he continues to demonstrate his commitment to the soldiers on, at the front, both military and National Guard, it's worth mentioning, and this is an interesting thing, many people tend to neglect the National Guard, Dumin, perhaps reflecting his background in the security apparatus, appreciates that's not probably the wisest move, so he always includes them too. But nonetheless, there's been two particular shifts in his political positioning. First of all, in terms of his rhetoric, while he continues to exalt the soldiers, he also has introduced a much more, shall I say, sort of populist and popular line, which is also looking at the survivors, the people who fought, the invalids and such like, which many people don't want to mention because after all, invalids, that's not heroic, but also the wider community. I mean, for example, very recently he was giving awards to veterans of the operation in the military and the National Guard, and his speech was, was clearly you know, largely geared at uh, exalting their role, talking about how they were fighting evil and such like, but there was also quite a bit about the wider impact. I mean, for example, again, just to pick one particular quote, He's talked about giving a low bow to mothers and fathers, wives and loved ones, for their tears, their ordeals, for their real courage. I mean, this is quite interesting. I mean, and I must admit, generally speaking, I don't know if it's him or whether he's actually just got a relatively able speechwriter. But again, the quality of his speeches is, is much higher than that you get from, from most sort of comparable re regional governors. And you know, Dumin, whatever his other skills, has never necessarily been presented as a great wordsmith. But anyway, this is this is a line he's giving. It's much more, well, one can't really call it father of the nation, but at this stage, father at least of the region, rather than just simply the sort of the, the, the war leader and the, the war cheerleader. It's also worth noting that in the, the same ceremony, he gave an award to Yaroslav Dromov, who is better known as the singer Shaman, this dreadlocked singer whose career 
in the kind of Russian equivalent of, of the X, X Factor, very much has taken off from the when he has reinvented himself, to, as it were, as a patriotic rock star, most notably with his song... Yes, I'm Russian, whose lyrics include the uh, point, I'm Russian, I'm going all the way, I'm Russian, my blood of my father, I'm Russian, I got lucky, I'm Russian, to spite the whole world, I trust you feel suitably uplifted. But anyway, the point is again that not so much that uh, there are people who are willing to write that kind of lyrics, but more to the point, again, what it demonstrates is the degree to which Dumin is trying to find an interesting, slightly different shade of ultra-patriot that, first of all, is recognising that there are sacrifices in a way that actually so many Russian officials and politicians are still unwilling to do. Secondly, affiliating himself particularly with those left behind. And it's quite striking, for example, that at a time when the Council on Soldiers' Mothers, which is an organisation which really dates back to the Soviet-Afghan war and and, uh, resurges every time there are these unpleasant conflicts, it has been given a lot of pushback. Gosh, pushback seems to be my expression of the day. My apologies for repetition. But anyway, a lot of trouble from the, the authorities. In Tula, it still seems that they actually have been allowed to operate. They are under under Dumin's Krisha, under Dumin's roof. So again, that's positioning himself as someone who's aware of the casualties. He's also trying to connect with the sort of inchoate, not quite turbo-patriot, but certainly sort of more young patriotic movements. I mean, for example, he's really quite active also in supporting the, the young army. You know, for all of these reasons, and he's actually really trying to find a way in which he can be supportive of the war, supportive of the Kremlin, and yet not in a way that necessarily destroys his relationship with wider society, something that that gives him that appearance of being more rounded, that he is both a patriot, but also someone who recognises the cost thereof. But perhaps most important of all is the degree to which he actually seems to have stepped back from involvement in national discussions, national media and so forth. All of the various events that I've seen him being talked about are very much Tula news. They're local. They're local to his region. Now, it could just simply be that no one in the the central uh, media apparatus is is interested in what Dumin does, but I really don't think it's the case, because up to now he's demonstrated a particularly effective capacity to connect himself to the national media. If he's now just confining himself to Tula, I suspect that's part of a media strategy. I mean, I was trying to find what kind of national issues has he been involved with of late? Well, the only thing it was, was actually that he was added to the membership of the Presidential Council for the Development of Physical Culture and Sport, which, you know, suits the fact that he's an action man, but is also, frankly, more part of the excising from the official record of Alexander Us, who had been on this council. And until this week, he was governor of Krasnoyarsk, but the trouble is that his son, Artyom, has been caught in some embarrassing high-profile fraud case in the United States, was under house arrest in Italy, fled house arrest and got back to Russia. But the point is that for various reasons, Us was vulnerable and was removed, and they just simply needed another warm body for the presidential council. But this is not exactly big news. So 
from the point of this, you know, what is, what is Jumin doing? Well, again, I think Jumin is trying to, while maintaining his clear, strong connections to the Kremlin and particularly to Putin personally, what he's actually trying to do is demonstrate that he can be a good governor that he can be a governor of the people. And this is something that he's been doing for some years, but in some ways it's become more interesting and more politically complex since the start of the, the war, because governors are under increasing pressure from the centre. And some of them are getting obviously disgruntled. Others are deciding that instead they're going to double down and support the war and support the, the centre's priorities, even though that clearly comes at the costs of their local communities, because after all, there's been a distinct diminution in the amount of resources that are going to the, the various regional leaderships to actually address local challenges and problems. So instead of, of taking either of those routes, instead, Dumin is actually trying to do a good job for his people and be seen to be doing so. Again, maybe one could suggest that this is just a, a dutiful man who just simply believes in, in doing his job. Well, I mean, maybe that's true and that would be very nice. But allow me to be a little bit more cynical and instead suggest that this is something, someone who's again trying by being a, a good citizen of his region, a good shepherd of his people and a good protector of the flock, but also thus to demonstrate his wider qualities. That this is a man who can balance effective management, close connection with his local people, but also patriotism, commitment to the nation as a whole. Again, if you were, and this is again, this is my speculation, but if you were contemplating the possibility that there may be a future in which the position of perhaps prime minister, but more likely president, is up for grabs, perhaps this is exactly the kind of profile that you would really be wanting to, to develop. Not scary for the existing elite not unpatriotic for the military and security apparatus, but at the same time capable of appealing to a wider constituency, capable of, when it comes down to it, getting people to write you a good speech and being able to deliver it not at all badly, certainly better than so many of the deeply stultifying regional politicians we find across the Russian Federation. So put all these people together some of them are very active. I mean, Dumin is active, he's just not active on the national scene. Others are distinctly inactive or trying to keep a low profile. It does say something, because none of the people I mentioned are people who one would regard as at all dissidents in any way, shape or form. These are all people who have been at the very heart of the whole Putin project. And yet now, carefully, gently, delicately, for different reasons, they're just tiptoeing away from it. And that's something which is not going to lead to Putin's downfall or anything else. Not now, anyway. Not for the foreseeable future. But nonetheless suggests that the collection of very different but all consummate political actors are just beginning to think of the possibilities that things may change quite dramatically. And that, well, that I find encouraging. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. 
Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>